Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. So we say, we always say the Black Panther Party, that they can do anything they want to do. We might not be back, I might be in jail, I might be anywhere. But when I leave, you remember I said, the last words on my lips, that I am a revolutionary. Revolution comes with a price tag. You were slave to a flag in a country that clearly doesn't love you when they probably never have. Told you turn the other cheek. And they made it with a bat. Fucking protesting them sit-ins. Told you go fight in the war. Vietnam, you died good riddance. The man of the house rule took you from your siblings. Turned around and pump crap right up in your city. And they turned all your leaders to martyrs. You was off in the war. Now who was guarding your daughters? It was riots in the streets. Killed Malcolm and Martin. Called the national guard up because we ride with our guard up. And now it's blood in your guard. It's like an amendment on the fly. To you, everything that they taught you was a lie to you. See, they get in your skin and they die in the shoot. Take the American dream and then you die to pursue. One day it'll all make sense. If it ain't about power, then it don't make sense. But none of that money matters when you live in madness. The one that you figure out that all you got is this. Peace, love, and the middle fingers. Right on. Peace, love, and the middle fingers. Right on. Peace, love, and the middle fingers. Right on. Peace, love, and the middle fingers. Good afternoon. You are tuned in to Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed, of course, broadcasting from behind these enemy lines known as USA Inc. Today's date is December the 18th, 2015. Next week is Christmas, and then five days after that, it's a new year. 2015, again, I can't stress this enough, just really went by uh, fast. And, you know, just so much has happened in this year politically, socially. Um, just so many things that we have talked about over uh, the year. Uh, today, we do have a guest scheduled to uh, call in to the program. Uh, we hope to be joined in dialogue by Dr. with uh, Dr. Terrence E. Dillard of the website or the company DCMeasures.com, and we will be having a discussion about information privacy and security. Also, we want to talk about digital countermeasures, crowdfunding campaign to train 100, and I believe that's 92, 192 African-American high school students in computer networking with the goal of getting uh, more black youth certified to work in the field of information technology. And so, you know, the uh, Black Talk Media Project, which is the North Carolina-based nonprofit which manages the Black Talk Radio Network and has done so since 2008. Uh, we have said that new media technology and technology in general is very important uh, to the black community in terms of platforms where we can disseminate information and have uh, discussions and whatnot about 
issues that are seen as specific uh, to our community. So we always support uh, more black people uh, getting involved in technology. Right now, though, well, um, in terms of information technology, of course, you're talking about a career field. I actually just had a cousin that graduated. Um, I can't remember the school. He's up there in Detroit, which is where I believe uh, DC Measures is based. I know they have an event coming up tomorrow, and we will see if we can get Dr. Dillard to uh, tell us what's happening in Detroit tomorrow in terms of the organization that uh, he is representing. Uh, we do have some news items to discuss with you today. Uh, we do have a update on the lawsuit filed by Mr. Jason Joseph against New York City, as well as the public museum known as the Met. Uh, the lawsuit, I don't know if y'all had an opportunity to check out that uh, interview or the podcast on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, our interview with Mr. Joseph, and where he explained why he filed his lawsuit. Now, what the lawsuit is aiming to do is force the parties to stop promoting racism and white supremacy through its display of the historically incorrect um, depictions of the biblical Jesus as an Aryan white male. Uh, Mr. Joseph again spoke to us about his lawsuit earlier this month on uh, December the 2nd. So if you're looking for it in the archives, then that's where to look. Look for the date. December the 2nd, Black Talk Radio News, and I have an update on that lawsuit. Um, I was in touch with Mr. Joseph. He sent me an email today to give me a status update about this uh, federal lawsuit against, again, New York City and the public museum known as the Met, so I have some updates on that. Uh, let's see. Uh, now, this one is a trip right here. Suspected racist white parents in Virginia caused a school district to be shut down today. So, you know, no school in this uh, particular district in Virginia. Now, this is why they shut the school down. It wasn't because they got any bomb threats or, or anything like that from uh, people. Um, but this is why they shut the school down. Now, uh, I'm not sure if it was the geography teacher, history teacher. Usually in high school, history and geography is all in the same class. Uh, but at a, a high school, um, the geography assignment was pertaining to world religions. And one of the religions that they were, the assignment was having the students look at was Islam. And this led to allegations of, of the school system trying to indoctrinate the students and convert them to Islam. They got a whole bunch of angry emails and phone calls and I mean that that like was like man that's like not shocking it's not shocking um, when we consider the uh, area where this occurred in northern uh, Virginia uh, this is the is not the first uh, case of parents getting angry over school assignments concerning world religions uh, some parents at other schools have filed similar complaints and saying that the schools are trying to uh, proselytize um, these students into Islam. Now, again, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, next week is December the 25th. Uh, that is the day set aside uh, to celebrate Christmas. Even though Jesus was not born in December, 
and a lot of people don't know the true history of why um, Christmas falls on December the twi 25th. They will have to go back to the early days of the Roman Catholic Church and how they were trying to incorporate, you know, the uh, pagans, quote unquote, the pagans into Christianity. And a lot of those people didn't want to give up their customs and their traditions. So, you know, they just incorporated into um, the Catholic Church, which then, you know, spread to the rest of Christianity. And now everybody around the world is celebrating Christmas on solstice um, on December the 25th. Now, I'm sure that there are plenty of Christmas plays going on in schools around the country. Um, and I'm sure that nobody will be complaining about those Christmas plays, you know, little children and stuff pretending to be Joseph and Mary and, you know, put a little baby doll in the manger and, and no, they're, the nativity scene and whatnot. Nobody will be complaining about that going on, on in, in these uh, public schools and whatnot. Um, and this just ties into what we have been seeing from um, the right wing of U.S. politics, uh, particularly the GOP, the Republicans. And it was only last week, you know, you had presidential candidate Ben Carson, who did a number of interviews, and he said that a Muslim should not ever be president of the United States. So we're going to take a listen uh, back to what he had to say. I got some audio clips on that to share. And it's it's just again it's just it's just ridiculous, man. The hypocrisy, the double standards, the contradictions—they just abound in this in this country among certain people. A listener of the program, one of our regular listeners, sent in some news, submitted it through our website, BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Uh, we do have a section there where you can send in news tips or. You can actually write your own article and blog, and we will publish it. You know, of course, we got to proofread it and and take care of any necessary editing that needs to be uh, done. And but you can send in your news, and we might publish it on the website, or I might share it on air. Um, and a listener again sent in a news tip, and it's pertaining to Colorado's booming cannabis business. For those that don't know what cannabis is, you might know what weed is. Um, I do, do not use the term um, MJ for those that know what I'm talking about. I don't use that term. It, it has racist connotations. If you do your research and uh, your history on the uh, drug war, you will know that that's a racist uh, name that, came, that they came up with. For cannabis, you know, it's kind of like tying it to uh, Mexican immigrants coming here, getting high on weed and, and flipping out and going crazy and raping a whole bunch of people. And, you know, weed leads to criminality and, and all of that uh, junk science. But anyway, Colorado is booming. It's not the only state, but uh, I think um, they have made the most money from the legal sale of cannabis or weed and there was an article that was published that, that he shared with me let me get that website uh oh I think I used the wrong link okay I'm gonna have to go to my e email and and pull it up um, I, I linked to the wrong thing I don't know how I did that but anyway um, the article talks about it, it quotes Michelle Alexander. I think she was interviewed for the article or whatnot. And she was just talking about 
how, you know, all of the people who are involved in Colorado's legal cannabis business, whether it's recreational or for medicinal purposes, are all white males. But if you look at the jails and you look at the prisons, you still have mostly non-white people. And this is according to um, according to uh, the doctor. And she said, Michelle Alexander, she said that in the jails, in the prisons in Colorado are still filled with non-white people. She said primarily black, but, you know, we say non-white people because it affects more than just black people. Uh, but she says their jails and prisons are full, full of these black kids and black teenagers and young adults and whatnot for selling weed, for selling weed, something that's legal now. So I guess they did not make the law when they passed it retroactive and, and you know, like, okay, we've legalized this. It's no longer illegal. Um, we were wrong to make it illegal in the first place, so we're going to legalize it and whatnot. Uh, we don't have the right to be telling grown people what they can and cannot put in their bodies and, and whatnot. So we're going to legalize it. But, you know, if for all the people that we arrested on those uh, charges before, oh, no, we're not letting you out. Uh, we're making too much money off of you. Um, we're providing too many jobs on the prison plantation to be letting all these people out over some nonviolent uh, drug crimes that we have now determined are not crimes at all. So. I definitely um, will pull that article back up and uh, read it to you, uh, especially if we have uh, have time to do that. Uh, let me see. Uh, we should have been joined uh, by our guest by now. Uh, let me check and see. Check the studio line. Okay. Let me see. DC measures. Okay. Let's go ahead and add them. Just a moment. Listeners, as a... Uh, we try to connect with the good doctor. Doctor, thank you for joining us. It's good to be here, Scotty. All right. Uh, let me just adjust some of my settings on, on my end. I was expecting you to call in, but I'm pleasantly surprised to see that you joined us via video uh, chat. And uh, it's it's always good to see who I'm talking to or whatnot. It's not a requirement, but it's good to see. Uh, thank you for joining, joining us today. Uh, before we get started, Dr. Dillard, uh, can you give us some background information on uh, D.C. measures? And, I, and for those um, who are listening on Black Talk Radio Network and those who are listening through Blab, I'm going to go ahead and post the link to their website. But it is dcmeasures.com. Doctor, if you would, inform us um, a little bit about your company. Okay, thank you very, very much for this opportunity. Um, so Digital Countermeasures Incorporated is an information technology, information security company. Uh, we provide uh, IT and information security consulting services to uh, small to mid-sized uh, corporations. Uh, we also provide uh, information technology, information security training uh, to corporations, as well as um, I do some consulting work with a number of higher education institutions, as well as government. And we're based out of, uh, we used to be based out of a su suburb of the city of Detroit called Troy, Michigan, mm -hmm. but we are firmly ensconced within the city of Detroit at this time. Right. And um, I actually have family and a lot of our listeners and some of the people I network, network with also live in Detroit. I wasn't born there, 
but I did spend some of my early formative years in Detroit. Again, still have family up there. And before we get get started with the interview, I noticed, you know, you had sent me some information. Y'all have uh, an event that's happening tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken, in the city of Detroit. So can you tell people a little bit about that event before we get into the meat of the interview? Absolutely. So uh, this event is occurring tomorrow. Uh, It's not really associated with my company, uh, Digital Countermeasures. Uh, a, a number of years ago, myself and a fellow colleague, uh, we came together collaborating uh, to create a program. It's called Meet the Scientists. And uh, one of the initiatives that we hopefully will talk about uh, before the interview is over is something that Digital Countermeasures is presently uh, doing to bring more African-American boys and girls into IT. Well, one of the things that we felt was important, myself and this fellow colleague, was to um sort of uh, start a program where we would come in contact with boys and girls, men and women from within the African-American community um, and introduce them, allow them to meet African-American scientists of all basically shapes and sizes. So computer scientists, medical, medical doctors, uh, nuclear physicists, mathematicians, um, aerospace engineers. Uh, we've had a, a number of inventors. And so we've been doing this now just going on three years. And we, we do this basically the, um, usually we do it the fourth Saturday of each month. It's held at the uh, Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Uh, that's in, uh, Detroit, Michigan and Midtown Detroit. Um, and this event tomorrow, December 19th, uh, will happen at the Charles H. Wright Museum. Uh, there's a wonderful exhibit that was uh, established in the museum a number of years ago called the Inspiring Minds Exhibit. And it has a lot of uh, original artifacts. Um, The actual uh, uh, Garrett Morgan, some of his inventions, um, uh, other inventors, a lot of their artifacts are available there in the exhibit. And so where we actually hold Meet the Scientists is right next to the exhibit. Um, we, we hold it right across from the Lewis Latimer Cafe within the museum. And for many who may not be aware, uh, Lewis Latimer was the uh, inventor who actually created the uh, filament for the incandescent light bulb. Um, he actually uh, documented a lot of the inventions for uh, Thomas Edison. And he was also the person that was uh, basically deployed to light the city of London and New York. And this is an African-American as well. So the hidden history that they work so hard to hide from us. You know, that's a conversation that I that I have uh, with a lot of our people about us not knowing our true history and our contributions uh, in the United States. Uh, one of my pet peeves is, is that, you know, I often hear a lot of people say, well, you know, black people are the descendants of enslaved Africans, and that's just simply not always the case. But I just hear a lot of African Americans uh, assume that they are the descendants of slaves, um, and I was under that same assumption until I actually did, you know, my family uh, background research and found that we were not, um, you know, uh, descendants of enslaved Africans. Not to say that anything's wrong with that. But again, this is the hidden history. I also found out here in the state of North Carolina, over 400 free black men fought in the revolution uh, from the North Carolina colony. 
Uh, there was a large population of them here in North Carolina. And this is, and to go along with what you were talking about, you know, these black inventors and whatnot, we feel like it hurts the self-esteem of black school children when this history is not taught to them and all they're taught is that, you know, uh, Africans came here from Africa via the transatlantic slave trade. And, and that's pretty much all I got in high school. Maybe some other people went to some different schools and they got more in depth into it. But we feel like that's a major problem that hurts the self-esteem of black children. And I, I, I'm happy to hear, you know, not only the location of where this event is going to take place is going to inform them of some of that history, but also to have people like yourself, you know, that are in these technology and science fields to see that, you know, it's, there's other things, other career paths for you out there other than, you know, playing sports or, or some of the other uh, uh, areas that they seem to try to push us to, like entertainment and whatnot. Absolutely. And um, so my, my colleague that, that I've been engaged in this activity with, uh, a brother by the name of David Head. He's an author, mm -hmm. and and David, he's a um, he's a retired transit worker from the city of New York. And uh, during the time that he was in the city of New York, uh, there was like you know Black History Month coming up, and so he was he was basically asked if he could make some sort of a uh, work on a committee to help uh, create some sort of a project, and he decided to look into were there any particular contributions that African-Americans had made in the field of uh, transit mm -hmm. and transportation? Mm -hmm. And to his dismay, he could not find very much that was documented. So he knew that, that this could not have been correct. So he, right. after he retired, he set out on a venture to um, collect as much information as he could. He started traveling primarily around the state of Ohio, various places. He learned a lot about um, uh, a, an innovator, uh, Granville T. Woods, um, which Granville is one of the most prolific, uh, inventors of, of any ethnicity or race. Uh, but this happens to be an African American from, uh, I believe he's from, uh, Cleveland, Ohio area. And, and Granville probably has to his credit somewhere in the vicinity of about 35 or so, uh, actual inventions. And, uh, so David Head, and you can look this name up if you go to, uh, look up David L. Head Foundation. Uh, you will find David's website. You'll probably see photographs there of David and I uh, from a number of our Meet the Scientists uh, events. And so essentially David had done this research on Granville T. Woods. And it just so happens that, you know, I'm a computer scientist. Um, I've been in this field for well over uh, 30 years. And so um, he and I decided to come together to embark upon this this event and we as i've stated already that we've been doing this for about uh three years now mm -hmm. um and it's, it's been an activity that's really focused on uh mentoring and inspiring our youth uh, it's important for our youth to see people that look like them uh that's doing this type of work i agree one of the things the, one of the things that i encounter and i'll try not to get too far ahead of our conversation here but i just will throw this out at this point, um, <clears throat> one of the things I encounter frequently uh, in the institutions where I teach as a professor, I encounter uh, numbers of African-Americans. And by the way, the numbers of African-Americans pursuing careers in computer science are not very large. Uh, actually, it seems to me that the numbers are sort of uh, diminishing uh, by some some degree. But nonetheless, whenever I encounter these students 
And because, you know, there's not very many African-American computer science professors. Uh, these students really crave uh, direction. Uh, they, they sort of crave a level of, of, of nurturing, right. something that I think generally a student might experience in a historically black college or university. And so I do what I can as, as a professor and as a mentor to help them navigate their path forward since I've been in this profession for so long. Well, let's talk about, let's get into the interview and talk about um, the profession. Um, when we're talking information privacy and security, um, I know that there are different applications uh, for that, whether it is in the medical field and securing patients' records and, and whatnot, or whether it's in billing for a business, you know, you want to protect those records. And we hear, hear it seems this year there's been a number of corporations who have had sensitive information leaked after they got hacked and whatnot. So specifically, what, what are we talking, what, what area of that field are we talking about today when we're talking um, about information and privacy security? Uh, great question, Scotty. So really, w when you stop and think about technology, uh, technology, and I'm going to use kind of a big word because this is something that's a part of our vernacular in this, right. in this discipline. So technology is ubiquitous. Okay. Essentially, what that's expressing is that there's almost no place that you can go today. There's almost no industry that you can um, engage in where information technology is not at work. And as you've already stated, the healthcare profession, uh, retail, um, even our critical national infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we now have something called the U.S. Smart Grid. Okay, so it's uh, and, and maybe for some of your listeners or some of your audience, some of them may be aware of something known as smart meters. Okay, mm -hmm. most of us carry in our pocket something called a smartphone. Uh, we are now dealing with something known as smart cars. Uh, many of us have uh, smart appliances, smart televisions, um, smart homes. Mm -hmm. All right, so all of these different um, versions of tech, all of these different things that I've already mentioned here are forms of technology. And what happens within technology is we're moving data, we're moving information in and out of those appliances or these different types of processes. And so what we're focused on, uh, first of all, as an information technologist or even as a networking professional, an IT professional, uh, one of the things that we are really uh, concerned about is properly implementing technology. Uh, implementing it in a manner uh, where it's not vulnerable to unauthorized access. Mm -hmm. uh, let's take, for instance, your uh, Black Talk radio network. Uh, so you have a, a system that you can rely upon uh, when you hit the switch or when you go online, when you're ready to deliver your broadcast. Uh, this, the, the system basically should do what it is that it's designed to do. Right. Uh, you shouldn't run into continuous surprises uh, when you log into your network to uh, for any of your customers uh, when they go to uh, deliver their broadcast. Right. If, if, if our systems are that vulnerable, then we say that the systems are not reliable. They have what's called uh, low ava availability as opposed to high availability. So what we seek to do within uh, technology, we want to we ensure that they're properly implemented. Mm -hmm. And also we're focused on three uh, particular principles. Information that should be kept protected, we want to maintain the confidentiality of that information. Right. So you don't want sensitive information being easily compromised. 
Uh, and then when you, <laughs> when you're actually implementing information, pardon me, um, you want to be able to trust the information that you are, you are working on or the information that you are taking advantage of to make your business decision. Mm-hmm. So we are, we're uh, concerned about the integrity of that information. And of course, we've already mentioned that you want your systems to be available. You want to have high availability. So we're focused on and get these three little letters. Many of us have heard of CIA, right? Right. Uh, but we're not focused on Central Intelligence Agency. We're focused on confidentiality, integrity, and availability. So those are the three fundamental principles of information security all around the world. And any of us who are in this in this line of work to keep systems confidential, make sure that the integrity is there and make sure that systems are highly available. These are the things that we are trained to do. And when you say available, you, you for an example, you mean like the clients that Black Talk Media Project has that operate their own digital radio stations. And then when they log in to the platform that it's available, that it's not down, they're not going through all of these problems and whatnot. Because when we first launched in 2008, we were having some issues with people trying to hack the website. And, and we finally got our vendor to you know, identify where the hacks were coming from, how they were getting in to disrupt the service. So that's what you mean by availability is when the clients are using a system that is, as it states, available to them to use when they choose. Absolutely. And and when we're talking about availability, really um, the whole notion of availability and even integrity and confidentiality mm-hmm. Those issues are, are not always as a result. Let's say if, if those basic fundamentals have been uh, degraded, okay. like if, if your, your customers are constantly having, you know, outages or maybe slow performance or any number of problems, they're not always as a result of someone malicious okay. hacking into your system or trying to shut you down. Okay. Uh, sometimes when we do not, those professionals of us who implement these systems, sometimes if we don't do our homework, uh, we may actually create a problem, a problem for our users. Uh, if we don't do the math, if we do not um, really estimate how much uh, data traffic is flowing through our networks, if we do not anticipate that with so many users logging into a server that we have enough uh, random access memory or RAM, right. uh, make sure that we have enough uh, bandwidth on the connectivity side. Right. Sometimes if we don't do that math, we inflict a problem upon our own system. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's so vital for those of us who do this type of work to really uh, understand uh, the, the components involved, understand how to properly implement. Mm-hmm. But an availability problem is the same, whether it's self-inflicted or someone from outside of your uh, operation mm-hmm. shutting you down, you're down, right? right. So the, the net result still is the same. Right, right. And, and, and just for uh, our laymen out there, um, in terms like we also, well, this is a new start service we just started offering where we specialize in, in uh, hosting uh, WordPress uh, websites on our server and whatnot. And so, right. you know, we have to, you know, allocate the resources so that it'll take into account, you know, the diff- the new websites that come upon the, the server and estimate how much traffic they are getting because, you know, um, if too many other resources are used, that could cause problems for all the websites, and then there'll be like network not available or something like that. Did, did I explain that right in layman terms? 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I probably could not have made that more clear than, than what you just articulated. And this is this is a part of the, the vital part of, of what we do. Um, so you, even as your network continues to grow, you want to make sure that you look out maybe, you know, three years, five years out into the future. And it's, it's important in order to be able to manage it, you got to be able to measure it. Right. And so it's, it's vital to have some sort of a, a measurement mechanism where you can um, allocate or anticipate what the um, what the the uh, demands will be upon your network. Right. Now I don't know if you see on your screen what I'm seeing on my screen, but there's these little bubbles that's right, uh, right. going through well, the screen. Um, let me tell you about the network that we are on. This network is fairly new. It's still in beta yeah. testing right now. <coughs> but as I was looking, you know, I, I tell the people I'm connected to through social media, you know, tell them what I'm working on. And I was just telling, you know, the people I'm connected to that I'm working on incorporating video into our yeah. broadcast. And, you know, so that people can, you know, see us and, and we were going to do it over YouTube. And so one of the people I'm connected to said, hey, check this out. So I came over to the platform and I was like, man, this is this is really simpler, you know, uh, than what I'm trying to do, because I would have to install the software on my computer, which then connects to YouTube's network. And then, you know, you had that stream going here. All I need is my webcam. I just log in and, and start it, and, and it detects all the settings. So I'm very impressed with that platform. Um, what that means, those things you see flying, is people are giving you props because they like what you have said or the points you're making. Oh, okay. Very cool. So when I see uh, little bubbles going across my screen, that's okay. Yeah, all right. It, that's people clapping. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's right. a new platform that we're trying out. And I have, you know, nothing but good things to say about it thus far. You know, it's pretty uh, uh, intuitive, um, not hard okay. to, to do. So we're we're looking at it. So we're looking. By the way, if if I on occasion, you know, clear my throat, I I have a little bit of bronchitis during this time of the season. So just pardon that. Oh no problem, extent. sir. Don't don't worry about that. But. I do have to take a quick station identification break. You're listening to Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed. Of course, we broadcast this program every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. We'll be right back after this. This is Brother Elliot, host of Time for an Awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium. Welcome back. Just to give you some network news for today, uh, Tando Radio Show will not be on live today as, again, as I stated yesterday, Brother Dave that hosts the program, uh, his family is currently relocating from California to Texas. Um, I believe they have arrived in Texas safely, but of course they got to get settled into the house. So no Tando Radio Show uh, today. Uh, but at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, uh, Brother Robin will be hosting Race Treaty. Uh, that's Race Treaty Radio. And then that will be followed up at 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time with another broadcast of the Lotus Place. So that's some of the network news we've gotten out of the way today. We are joined uh, by Dr. Terrence Dillard of D.C. Measures. You can uh, visit the website at D.C. 
www.mediatedmeasures.com. And we are in a discussion about information privacy and, and security of the whole IT field. Um, one of the things that you said earlier, Doctor, uh, you mentioned that you're starting to see a decline in African-American student participation or even enrolling into enrolling. you know this field what 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 do you attribute that to if you can put your finger on any anything at all well um what studies have shown and and there's been a fair amount of research um inquiring into this phenomenon lately uh, with all of the focus on quote unquote stem um one of the things that have been sort of uh noted is the fact that for African-American students, most notably African-American males, we really, in our communities, we do not encounter people who are doing this type of work. Okay. Now, one of the things I, I like to share when I'm trying to make this case to, uh, let's say, um, other interested parties, maybe to other institutions, I think about when I was, when I was a, a child. Um, I actually have been in technology since I was about 13 years of age. I started out around 12, you know, just kind of, I was taking things apart in my parents' home, but they saw that as me tearing things apart. <laughs> and I was just trying to figure out how things worked. Mm -hmm. uh, but my dad, I think he kind of recognized that uh, there was something inquiring in my spirit where I wanted to know. Mm -hmm. And so he, he basically went out and he uh, took me to a local um, business, uh, black-owned business. This was back in the 70s, by the way. I took me to a local television repair shop called TV Rebuilders. And he convinced the owner of that shop to allow me to come into that business and basically as a, as a intern. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I started out sweeping floors, taking out the trash, you know, things of that nature, uh, picking up coffee. And then eventually some of the technicians would allow me to sit next to them and they would show me how to test out a vacuum tube. Now, for some of your listeners, they probably don't know what vacuum tubes are, <laughs> right. but it's the precursor to a lot of the digital electronics that we presently enjoy. Mm -hmm. But I learned how to, to test out vacuum tubes. Eventually, I learned how to repair televisions. And by the time I was 15, I had my own television repair shop wow. in, the, in the basement of my parents' home. And so folks from my church, my neighborhood, uh, family, they, they would bring their broken televisions to my folks' home. And I would repair them. And I've been, you know, I was making money at the age of uh, basically of 15 and um, made a little bit of money as an intern. But at that age, I wasn't interested in money. I was just interested in learning. And um, then through my entire high school career, I studied electronics. Uh, back then we had uh, industrial education uh, where I was basically immersed in this information and, and these ways of doing things. And then I think by the time I was about 16 and a half or so, uh, I was hired by General Motors engineering staff to work in their electronics lab as a uh, intern. And uh, that was during my 11th, uh, 11th grade of, of high school. And then by the time I was a senior, I was the uh, service technician for a company called Olson's Electronics. So literally I've been doing this work, but today with the state of uh, public education, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty uh, dicey circumstance for a lot of our youth today. And so what a lot of African-American boys and girls typically see, they may see a, a, a teacher. They see lots of ministers. Um, they may see athletes. 
mm-hmm. and they may see some hustlers mm-hmm. or they see people who are unemployed and uh, nothing against any of those other disciplines or professions, but the, the uh, skills and careers of the future are technology based. Mm-hmm. And we can see that technology proliferates into basically everything that we do today. Mm-hmm. You almost can't do anything today without um, touching some sort of technology. Right. So lots of students, let's just say that many students don't have a real notion of what this profession is. Uh, they're usually shocked when they find out how much money we make. Um, I can say for myself, uh, in my entire life, I've never been unemployed. Um, and I have a set of skills that even when the market's down, I can always reinvent myself. So uh, this is something where I have found as I've mentored youth, uh, they've expressed an interest. And one of the things that um, for folks who, who will learn about our campaign that we are undergoing right now, uh, there's actually a video out there that of, of a number of my mentees, folks who I've mentored, mm-hmm. who are now computer scientists. And they are, you know, firmly in the profession. Uh, they're making very good money. They have some job security and it's moving forward for them. So I think a lot of it has to do with uh, providing guidance, nurturing and mentoring. Well, you also, I think curriculum and you touched upon that. Uh, I think you said in your school, that's where you first took, you know, uh, your technology based class. Um I the only thing I remember, and I'm gonna take it back to high school, um, and, and that was here in North Carolina. Um, I think the only yeah. thing we had similar to that was auto mechanics, which I took auto mechanics, and and I can work on cars and and whatnot. That's you know, uh, as a teenager grew up, all of us working on our little hand-me-down cars or cars that you know we had bought for a couple of hundred dollars and whatnot, and. And but we didn't have uh, any of the technology type classes back then, and I was in high school during the eighties, uh, during the nineteen eighties. Um, another thing that's sad that's happening right there in your city, uh, in the city of Detroit, at Cass Tech. Uh, you you've heard of Cass Tech, I'm sure. Um, I got another. I I'm very I'm very familiar with Cass Tech. My my daughter attends there. Right, and I got a number of uh, cousins who graduated from uh, Cass Tech back in the um, 70s and, and the 80s and whatnot. But one of one of my associates that lives there and works there um, in Detroit, R. Lee Gordon, if you're tuned in, shout out to you, brother. Um, but he had sent me a story, and he was telling me that, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Cass Tech, or it might be tied to the entire Wayne County School District. But they have a multi-million dollar television studio that has not been used in years. And, and it's just it's just sitting there. And the students aren't allowed to take to take advantage of that. And that might would point them into, you know, communications fields, whether that's in front of the mic or behind the mic, in front of the camera, behind the camera. And I just thought that's just a, a waste. And then I see this this lack of curriculum in the technology field all across the country. Uh, how do we rectify that? Do we do our school as a community do, in terms of educating our children? You know, it seems like that we are giving them the short end of the stick compared to other children in other nations. I would, I would completely agree with your take on that, Scotty. Um, to back up just a little bit, when I think about 
when I came into high school and I, you know, I, I actually started attending high school, I think around 76, 77. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's kind of interesting was this was right about the time. So if you think about Brown versus the Board of Education, right. uh, there were a number of schools that really did not fully implement, you know, the, the whole policy of breaking down this whole notion of separate but equal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually it was inherently uh, unequal as we as history uh, have proven. Um, but nonetheless, when uh, the city of Detroit decided to try to um, comply with that Supreme Court ruling, uh, they started busing. And the high school that I attended, literally there were high schools right in my community, but I had to actually get on a city bus and take a bus all the way across town into another community, which was at the time predominantly white. Over time, more African-Americans started to populate this school. But uh, back at that time, right about the time I came into high school, they still had all of these very robust programs. I mean, they had mechanical drawing. They had uh, wood shop. They had electronics. Architect. I remember I mean, architect. They... Go ahead. Drafting classes. I remember drafting classes in, in yeah. junior high. <laughs> yeah, so all of those programs existed. And um, the city of Detroit used to be considered, they were called the, uh, the Paris of the United States because the standard of living was so high, uh, the automotive industry had created in very short order uh, a number of middle class uh, families, black and white. And so uh, our school system was, was second to none. And uh, with, with the exception of, you know, we, we, we did have at one point some of the elements of, of the Jim Crow South. It was all exported here to Detroit. Uh, so there was a lot of, um, you know, the, the whole discrimination and and just, you know, places where blacks weren't able to really fully take full advantage of what was available. But this particular area, uh, as, as you've already mentioned, uh, this television station, uh, the cast, someone recently made me aware of that. But something else is, is rather significant. Um there's uh, Benjamin Oliver Davis Jr., Benjamin O. Davis. Um, many people may not know who this person was, but... He is a general <laughs> in the military. General Benjamin Oliver Davis was the commander for the Tuskegee Airmen. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he came through West Point Military Academy, he was the only African-American in that institution at the time. He was quite a tough person who persevered, and he was able to achieve. He understood very clearly what the what the challenges were that tried to flush him out of the system. But he pushed through despite all of that. Well, we have a school here, um, which is the uh, Benjamin Davis Aeronautics High School. And this is a school where um, high school students are taught how to repair aircraft. Mm-hmm. They're taught how to fly aircraft, and they, by the time they complete the program, they could actually uh, receive a commercial pilot's license. This is high well, school. Well, that's another program. This Go is ahead. high school? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> and Benjamin O. Davis, even to this day, uh, right now, they're struggling to, to even stay alive because the circumstance in Detroit Public Schools today is so toxic and so um, basically degraded that there are there are parents and, and groups who are rallying to keep that school open. 
but the Detroit Public Schools is under the leadership of an emergency manager who has been put into place by the governor of the state. And and it seems that that particular side of things is really uh, focused on killing Detroit Public Schools as a whole. Uh, they, it looks like they're really trying to turn this Detroit uh, pre-K through 12 educational scenario, they're trying to mimic what has been implemented in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. So um, education as regards um, urban communities, particularly where African-Americans and Latinos exist, and I, I, I focus quite a bit on my community, African-Americans, is very much under assault. Um, <clears throat> there is a concerted attack uh, to tear these schools apart. Uh, right now, we are actually a school district that's, that has two separate school districts. Detroit Public Schools, a number of the schools were, were taken from underneath Detroit Public Schools, and the governor implemented something called the, um, I think it's like the Educational Academic Authority, the EAA, mm -hmm. uh, which has been, it appears it has been a um, glittering example of failure at every level. And so now... Um, they are in the process of trying to come up with another bright idea. In the meantime, uh, these students, particularly the ones who happen to be in the school system during this whole transitionary or upheaval, uh, they're the ones who are really suffering the most. And, and that even goes for the teachers. Uh, there is no, there seems to be no real, um, security, uh, for teachers and, uh, the students, of course, uh, they they really are getting the short end of the stick for sure. Yeah, Jim, you've already touched upon this, um, <coughs> and I guess we can kind of segue into uh, the the uh, crowdfunding campaign that you have going on to uh, train 192 African American high school students in computer um, networking. So. What are some of the solutions? Because, again, the problems that you laid out that you're having in the Detroit public school system, I see this playing out. I talk to different people, you know, around the nation. We see that happening in Chicago. We see that happening in Philadelphia. You know, the whole I'm sure you've heard of the term of school to prison pipeline. And it's real. I'm here to tell you that it is real when you're closing schools but building present, uh, prisons then I think your intent is pretty clear what you have in mind for these students as they become adults and whatnot. But like you said, with so many people, especially in the black community with unemployment, traditionally being twice, if even three times, whatever they say the national unemployment rate is, considering that there seems to be so many job opportunities and not just job opportunities, but business uh, entrepreneurship opportunities and information technology how do we despite the challenges of the schools reach these children and and with this crowdfunding campaign that seems like you know you're trying to come up with a solution that's right so and i want to answer that question but i i need to really kind of underscore something that's, that's sure. sort of important sure and, and i hope i don't sound like i'm on a soapbox when i say this I'm around a lot of folks in our community who are expressing consternation over uh, what seems to be happening with regards to our school systems. Um, we're at that time of the year where a lot of a lot of us will, you know, we will recognize Kwanzaa 
Uh, we talk about self-determination, uh, cooperative economics, all these types of really lofty uh, ideas. And, and I really support these principles wholeheartedly. But then at the same time, and, and I've seen this for a couple of years running, uh, at the very end of this event where we have and here in, in this area where, you know, there's over there's just over 700,000 people in the city of Detroit and 80 percent of those folks are African-Americans. Mm-hmm. So what tends to happen in this city is that for folks who come together and try to uh, put their minds together for um, us working together as a community, every single year, the same question gets asked, which is, where do we go from here? And in my view, what I think I'm observing, just not even reflecting on racism, white supremacy as as a a global problem, right? Um, I'm just talking about getting inside the heads of many of us in this community. Um, I hear a lot of people just running their mouth. Okay. And so, you know, I saw this in 2014, 2013. Here we are now, 2015. <clears throat> And, and my family and I will, we will be uh, celebrating Kwanzaa. Uh, we have families coming over right after Christmas and, you know, all of the family just getting together. And I, I'm sure the same questions are going to be asked. And when given an opportunity to actually uh, make a difference, what I think I'm seeing is a lot of us who just sort of were more satisfied with the rhetoric as opposed to actually uh, springing into action. So, here I am to uh, to answer your question. So I teach computer science. I teach information technology. Uh, I've been teaching this material since uh, about 2007. Uh, I've taught this for a number of schools. Uh, at this point, I probably it's reasonable to say that I've, I've educated roughly 6,500 to 7,000 students in uh, computer science or information technology. So when I bring it back to my community, knowing that we are, in many cases, economically uh, disenfranchised um, and there's many challenges, and I've actually held these classes, not necessarily for free. Uh, I've been told by many people that if you try to give something out for free, people won't think that there's any value, so they won't support it on that side of the ledger. Mm-hmm. But then if you try to get people to put their money where their mouth is, they don't support it on that side of the ledger. So what we're stuck with oftentimes is just waiting for somebody else to come and rescue us, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And so um, the position that, that we've taken within uh, digital countermeasures, and that's what DC measure stands for, digital countermeasures, the position we've taken is we, we've got to do something different. So uh, instead of delivering this course at the college level, which we still do, I've decided to bring it down to the high school level. Mm-hmm to educate 10th, 11th, and 12th graders in information technology. Basically, Network Plus is what we call it. It's an internationally recognized um, IT certification. And for an adult, <coughs> excuse me, who achieves the certification, they have the ability to earn between starting at $40,000 and going as high as roughly sixty-two to 63000 Mm-hmm. Um, a follow-on course to that one is called Security Plus, and the the, the uh, salary range there starts at about thirty-six and goes as high as ninety-two thousand dollars. Now, for many folks in our community, where we just barely are able to get a person out of high school with the ability to read and write, add and subtract, 
that's a huge problem. And then one of the barriers of entry is the cost of education. So what we're endeavoring to do is we're, we're, we're looking to shrink this down and we're reaching out to, uh, we'll take money from anyone from any ethnicity anywhere on the globe. That's not a problem. Money's green. However, uh, we're trying to appeal to our community to not do as much talking and let's engage in some action to make a difference. And this model, we believe, is something that can be replicated around the country. Now, we won't do crowdfunding to educate students around the country. Uh, this particular model, we want to get this thing out the gate. And we've raised a small amount of money out there right now. It's actually only enough to educate. It's, it's actually not quite enough to educate one child right now, but uh, we're, we're remaining uh, optimistic that that will change. Um, but we, we're looking to educate uh, 192 <coughs> African-American boys and girls in uh, Network Plus, and we've adopted four schools, which I won't mention the schools here because, um, you know, there's such rivalry within Detroit Public Schools and plus this, this other entity known as the EAA. We don't even want to be involved in the, the intramural uh, tug of war. Uh, essentially, uh, we're raising the funds and we've already have a, a protocol in place where uh, the principals of those schools are going to nominate uh, the students that they feel will be good candidates. But then we'll go through an additional process to vet the student. Okay. And then we will actually teach the course on this on that high school's campus. That was uh, this one course of will one go. Of my questions go ahead. Was, was where yes. where was the instruction going to take place? So so it will take place on the students' campuses where they are, where it will be offered. That's correct. One of the things that has happened since we've started, um, you know, sort of promoting this, this concept, and I've been on a number of local television programs, um, <coughs> number of local um, radio broadcasts, and we seem to be getting more requests from adults who are asking, uh, mm-hmm. is it possible for us to get into this course? And, mm-hmm. and so we are actually putting, the, putting together a class that will will convene mid January at one of the local community colleges, um, where we're going to actually be training um, adults and moving them through the process of of gaining this certification. Mm-hmm. I will I will add that all of the students that I've mentored, they all of these students have um, generally when I encounter at least some of the students that are there uh, giving testimonies, some of these students were actually pursuing. Um, either a certificate program or an associates of science degree in um, technology. Okay. And so when I encountered them at, at one of our local uh, four-year schools and <clears throat> they actually had to come through my course, uh, that's when I gave them some insight that, you know, their time would probably be better spent if they actually pursued a bachelor of science in IT, which they all decided to do. Um, they all are gainfully employed with major corporations and they have um, certifications. One of the things that's, that's highly advisable for folks who are pursuing careers in IT is actually to go to work for someone else for a number of years in order to gain the experience base. Right, hands and, and corporations, you know, there's, there's lots of, of different activities. There's lots of business processes that, you know, a new employee could, be exposed to. Right. And then once they gain that experience, then 
you know, there's a pathway for them to go out and actually uh, try their hand at being an entrepreneur. Right. Uh, that's how I kind of got my start. And um, so we just try to navigate, help navigate them on a path towards their goals. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yes, the the uh, the course itself will be delivered at the local high schools of the students. I do want to let the uh, listeners know uh, for the program notes on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, we have also linked to the Indiegogo uh, website uh, for the campaign, and I just shared that for those who are viewing uh, through Blab.im. I shared that in the chat room. There's the link. Uh, please go and give. Uh, to this worthy cause. I'm going to take another short station identification break, and then when we come back, um, we will continue uh, to discuss this very important topic and um, get ready to wrap up the uh, interview. Uh, again, you are tuned in to Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed. We are part of the Black Talk Radio Network, uh, new black media for the new millennium. Stay tuned. Be right back. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. And welcome back again. Our guest today is Dr. Dillard of dcmeasures.com. Go check out the website, dcmeasures.com. I'm sure if you need some information, IT consulting that he can provide it for you. Ain't that right, doctor? Absolutely. Let's, um, again, I want to talk uh, again about this crowdfunding. Um, I had spoke to, I had done an interview and, you know, I talked to him through email on a regular basis. Uh, but there's a gentleman by the name of, of, of Martin uh, Adams. Um, so, yeah, we had uh, talked to him about crowdfunding he uh, runs the website uh grassroots uh well, let me make sure i give that out correctly i have so much information uh culturalgrassroots.com that's the name of the website and what he's building is a crowdfunding uh portal for black business and for he's looking for right now you know he's in a pre-launch stage he's looking for 50,000 emails of of people who potentially might want to become investors and not donors but investors into these projects that come up but we talked to him last week and he has some very exciting news to report uh from the uh security and and exchange uh, arm of the government, the SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission, um, is it, the name of the organization that regulates it. And now they have changed the crowdfunding rules. This was done, I believe, on uh, back in on October the 30th, if I remember correctly, to now to where they will start regulating crowdfunding to the point to where you actually are an investor instead of a a, a donor. The way he explained it. Whereas before you might gotten a T-shirt or a thank you card or a letter. And, you know, of course, people should give to things that they want to see, you know, take fruition. And, you know, it's not to take anything away from people being uh, uh, donors and whatnot. But he was talking about right. the possibilities that if you have a good business ideal, good proposal, uh, good invention ideals of uh, now, you know, we're not asking you for money. We're asking you to be investors. And so um, I'm, I'm just seeing that as a, a, a tool, a new tool 
perhaps that we can use in the black yes. community to fund some of these things where these people are not just donating money, but they are actually investing in these projects. What, what are your thoughts on that? Is that something you could see possibly being helpful in the information technology field down the road? Well, it, it sounds it sounds rather interesting. I think that when it comes to actually investing, um, and and this you know this is something that I I believe that the Security and Exchange Commission could speak better to. But when we're talking about a publicly traded firm, which is essentially what's what we're dealing with when companies are listed on the U.S. Stock Exchange right. or the Nasdaq or you know any of the other um, uh, companies that are shown there with the ticker tape. Uh, these companies actually have to abide by certain uh, governmental um, regulations. That's true. Uh, oftentimes it's an issue of, uh, let's say, something known as uh, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act or Sarbanes-Oxley. Uh, so I think that there may be some dynamics that may be slightly different. Um, most companies that are being traded on Wall Street, you know, they have to do something called an initial public offering. I would be curious to know the details of how um, a, a company that's essentially trying to leverage the, the collective of a crowd to fund an idea so they can get it out there into, you know, um, operationalize their, their plan or their project. It's just a quick way of like if, if one goes to the bank and borrows money right. or they find an angel, an angel investor, mm-hmm. um, to, or joint venture, uh, capitalist for, for, firm to, to invest in their idea. Uh, I would be curious to know the details of how um, the SEC would would get in the game of crowdfunding. It almost sounds to me a little bit like uh, another way that the government tries to slip themselves into uh, innovative ideas so they can they can get a little bit of uh, revenue out of it. That's what it sounds like. To right. Me. And the details, again, the uh, ruling was just made uh, in October on October the 30th. And I really haven't, outside of Mr. Adams, heard anyone else really talking about it. So definitely we're going to be doing some follow-ups with him to get those details. Like, for example, maybe I just want to start uh, LLC or, or something like that. I don't want to be a publicly traded with, the, with those uh, potential people online still be able to uh, become investors so there's a lot of you know you raised some very uh, good questions and points and um, we will definitely I will definitely try to find answers to that because it speaks to what you were speaking to earlier you know we just had the justice or else rally and people are talking about boycotting Christmas and, and you know Thanksgiving and don't spend your money. Um, they go back to you know uh, Doctor the Civil Rights era. Doctor King, you know, talked a lot about boycotting and whatnot. But it seems right. like you know if we really want to empower ourselves, then we need to practice collective economics. If we really want to address the unemployment I- issue in the black community, which historically has been double or triple that of, of the average, then it seems like to right. me, if if everything is above board, so to speak, with this new rule by the SEC, then this seems like this is a vehicle that perhaps we could use to get involved in those things. So like you mentioned, you said, you know, a lot of times people around this time, Quans or whatnot, we do a lot of talking. But when it comes time to, you know, put some action behind those words, then a lot of us are are missing in action. All right. So maybe this person 
doesn't want to be involved in in the you know the laying the groundwork and the foundations and and building whatever it is we're building but maybe they'll throw sure. in ten dollars twenty dollars twenty five dollars in the pot and become an investor of uh, that way so I, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Just the potential. I understand we got to know the details, but, you know, what do you see that as a potential? Because I was thinking also you mentioned the banks. We know that it typically historically in the black community about redlining. We know about, you know, blacks being given loans with, with uh, uh, you know, paying a higher uh, percentage rate back than other people who may have the same credit score or whatnot. So to me, this is also a way to get around discrimination in the banks or, or that, you know, the capital uh, crowd. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I go along with what you're saying there, and, and I, I would completely agree. Um, I'm actually very much for innovation in whatever ways that we can leverage it. I do feel that, um, within the web 2.0 world, it, it actually provides us some, some opportunities and avenues by which we can do some things differently. Uh, maybe uh, crowdfunding, you know, could, could actually demonstrate itself to be a real game changer for, for lots of people. Um, but this is my first foray into this arena, okay. and I have yet to see what it's going to do. But what we're really focused on is, is the benefit of getting, you know, lots of, people interested in this idea um so the, the i'm trying to think of the name of the the crowdfunding organization that you mentioned earlier from the one brother that you spoke oh, with i think that's a that's a yeah i think that's a fascinating a fascinating idea um the securities and exchange commission is really um what their real function is to be frankly honest they're government regulators right and what they're supposed to do is regulate the financial markets and so, um, you know, once again, it, it really will come down to what the details are. The, the one thing I will share is this. Um, industries that have operated with a level of self-policing, generally when, when industries can manage and police their own activities, mm -hmm. um, that typically causes government not to get too involved. Now, one of the things we're seeing right now, literally across this country, and this is a very, um, robust conversation that's happening here right now in the city of Detroit. So Detroit happens to be uh, an area where um, marijuana has been legalized. And so uh, citizens can, I guess they can have so much uh, marijuana on their person. Um, I, I'm not really sure how that plays out if an African-American is encountered by law enforcement and they're found in the possession of, mm -hmm. of uh, marijuana or cannabis. However, uh, we have a we have an explosion of these medical marijuana dispensaries that have uh, just proliferated across the city of Detroit, <clears throat> whereas the surrounding suburbs basically have none. And uh, there was a hearing with the Detroit City Council just yesterday where the vast majority of the 125 or so dispensaries that's here in the city are pretty much people that don't live in this community. So what government has done to in, in the, the quest to make this legal, and I, I, I've heard all the arguments about, you know, uh, nonviolent crimes, things of that nature. And, of course, we know that significant numbers of African-Americans are incarcerated over possession of uh, what was widely considered an illegal substance. Right. Right. Well, now government's gotten in the game. 
So when government can make a buck off of it, then they find a way to bring it into the fold, as it were, mm. and uh, to regulate it, to tax it, things of that nature. So right. it's just a question of um, is, is this a is this a backdoor way of regulating crowdfunding, mm. right. or is it really something to spur on some real um, innovation in the minds of an investor mm-hmm. who might be able to write it off as an investment? Well, for that's a, what they said. For profit as well as nonprofit. That's what they said, Dr. Dillard. Some of the information I, I read coming out of the uh, Obama administration was that the reason this was done was to spur innovation and, and whatnot. So, but they can say one thing, but and do another. So <laughs> it's, it's wait and see. It's wait and see. But uh, Mr. Adams seems to be, you know, kind of excited about it. And uh, he said it's very historic for the black community. And, and so uh, we will definitely get him back on and talk more about that. But, yes. the, but the website is culturalgrassroots.com, uh, culturalgrassroots.com. Um, before we get ready to wrap it up again, I, I want to take the focus back to uh, these this uh, crowdfunding that you're doing for this program. And so, you know, it, it, have you seen anything like this done anywhere else? Or is this something, a new ideal and uh, an original model that, that you and those working with you have come up with? And if successful, you know, I'm wondering if we can, you know, apply it across in other areas across the nation. Because I think what you're doing is very important. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it done anywhere. And um, I'm not saying that just to stake you know, originality, but I think at this point is probably a pretty novel concept in terms of what we're endeavoring to do. Uh, this course that we're offering, um, it's a course that's, that's offered at local community colleges, two-year schools. Mm-hmm. I teach this for other institutions, and I basically know what they charge for this course, and we're basically giving it away for mm-hmm. um, a third of what is, you know, uh, normally delivered for, but in reality, these students are going to get far more because this course is generally delivered in 16 weeks at a, at a local community college. Wow. And it could be delivered. It could be delivered in a shorter span of time. Mm-hmm. I've taught the same material in 10 weeks at, at, at another school, but we're going to deliver this in 16 weeks. But not only are we going to uh, basically nurture the student through each phase of understanding all of the principles of information uh, technology networking, all of the networking protocols. Mm-hmm. Um, they will actually have labs, hands-on experience, but we're also going to help them develop their own portfolio. Um, they will have, when they, when they leave this course, they will actually have two actual credentials. And then once we have developed these students to the point where they're certified, then we will start to market them to local firms. Wow. And it's in our so interest to see these placement. students be successful. Got a job placement. <laughs> you have a job placement component to it. We do, but we we haven't articulated that as strongly as will be articulated in the future. Right. Okay. Uh, what we want to do right now is we we really need to generate people, get them in the pipeline, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an article that um, that we actually show on the site where Silicon Valley claims that they're looking for African Americans. And I will say this, um, Reverend Jesse Jackson and the Ray- Rainbow Push Coalition, they've actually been strong arming uh, Silicon Valley, most notably Intel. They've been there doing some 
I think, some pretty aggressive work to get Silicon Valley to open up a little bit and allow more African Americans into some of these uh, into some of these prestigious opportunities. <coughs> Politically, Google is a company that, for all of its folks that it has employed, the numbers of of African Americans who are there are just so minuscule that we almost do not register on the radar screen. Mm-hmm. So these companies are now saying publicly, uh, we are seeking African Americans to come work for us. But here's the dirty little secret. We're not being produced from the institutions. Our kids are coming out of high school oftentimes not knowing how to read. So by default, we are being kept out because of a precursor issue, which is that education prior to being able to be accepted into these firms. Now, keep in mind for African-Americans who actually have this education, they're working in these firms. Okay. They're being hired into these opportunities. They can seize upon internships. And, and I reflect back once again to my experience as a high school student working at the General Motors Tech Center and engineering staff doing electronics. I had the knowledge. I had the experience. There was an internship there. And so I was able to walk right into that opportunity. And it, it's, it's an indelible part of who I am today as an engineer. So this is something that we wish to um, sort of expose our youth to. And so from that st- standpoint, I think what we're doing is quite novel, quite original, because I'm really coming from my my experience and my story and putting this out there and creating a circumstance where um, our youth will be able to seize upon these uh, growing career options. For those who are listening now or may see, listen to the podcast or the video cast later, um, how, what would it take for them to, let's say, sponsor one child? You're looking to put, you know, 192 African American uh, boys and girls through this. What would it cost for me to sponsor one child? One child in this course is $595. $595. Okay. Correct. All right. And we, we actually, we're actually experiencing, um, I, one, one person that comes to mind right now is a mother. Um, I've shared this information with her, but all of her children are adults, but she has, um, apparently she has one son who's an adult and his, his, really his career options are almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. And he's, He's not a high schooler, but uh, several of her other kids have, have come together and they say, uh, we're going to gift this to him as a Christmas present. Mm. And so um, I thought, man, that's that's quite a I thought that was quite an impressive idea, considering that, you know, if you think about the number of folks who probably are going to be lined up at the Apple store for some new electronic gizmo or maybe at the Nike store for a new pair of uh you know, Air Jordans or something, um, or any number of other, um, you know, electronic gadgets that have a, these things have a limited life cycle. You know, anytime there's a new one that's rolled out, and I can say this totally as a, as an engineer and a technologist, um, you know, you take the Apple iPhone, for instance, the iPhone that we're using today actually existed about six or seven years ago, but they phase how they roll these things out to keep, right 
the uh, the consumer addicted, and I call it I call it electronic crack. Okay, mm-hmm. people are addicted to this technology, and so they always feel the compulsion or feel compelled to uh, stay current. Yeah, so they're the always buying mm-hmm. the latest and greatest. Right, yeah. right. Well, we but this ha- is something. This is something that will last a student, you know, well into the future. Right, right. Well, I hope the listeners, uh, last month in the uh, month of November, we had over 84,000 unique listeners. And so I hope each and every last one of them will at least contribute a dollar, two dollars, three dollars, five dollars, and help you reach uh, the crowdfunding goal because I think what you're doing is great. I think it's much needed. And quite frankly, I think it needs to be duplicated. Uh, all over this country in urban areas uh, because of for the reasons we spoke of earlier because of them of these students not being served properly by the so-called education system did you have anything that you would like to leave with the listeners and the viewers in closing dr dillard it's been a pleasure speaking with you today well thank you scotty uh, i just want to thank um you and the listeners for this opportunity to share um, details about our campaign. Uh, maybe in the future, uh, we can strike up another conversation around privacy and security. Uh, that this happens to be a topic that, um, is, is in very high demand. Um, the average consumer has no notion of what's on the backside of this technology that they're using and how these devices are actually, um, they're designed a certain way to produce a certain outcome. And, uh, so, you know, in the future, maybe we'll have that opportunity to to broach that topic. Well, let's let's get you on. Let's say after the new year, and we will do a segment uh, focus on specifically nothing but that. That sounds fantastic. All right, we'll be in touch. You have a great day, um, and enjoy your family over the holiday season, Doctor Dillard. Thank you very much, Scotty, and you do the same. All right. Okay, we are going to uh, take a message music break, and then when I come back, I'll give you a quick rundown of some of the news uh, that we would like to talk about. Uh, We were talking about with Dr. Dillard about the cannabis, and um, I actually do have a story that was sent to me by one of the listeners. I got to find it uh, in my email because I linked to the wrong article. Um, But we will discuss those news topics on the other side. Once again, you're listening to Black Talk Radio News. My name is Scotty Reed, broadcasting this program from behind enemy lines. We have to begin to move to control our community. Everything that's in your community that you don't control is a weapon against you. Public education as it exists today is a weapon against black people. TV and news media, especially the WPP, White Power Press, White People's Paper, and White People's Power, are enemies against black people. What the white press does is that it makes black people an enemy of black people. Have you thought about getting into podcasting but don't know where to start? Have something to say to the world but don't know how? The popularity of podcasts and internet radio streaming continues to grow with millions of people on the planet gaining internet connectivity through a multitude of devices. In the current media age, people can browse internet radio stations or listen to podcasts right from the dashboard of their cars. There are few barriers to anyone who wants to produce internet-based media. 
to encourage media production for black people by black people. If you are an independent black media producer or want to become one, the nonprofit Black Talk Media Project is offering unlimited and unmetered podcast hosting services below industry pricing. Need more information about the industry and the technology? Find out how to create internet-based radio broadcasts and or podcasts at www.knowledgebase.blacktalkradionetwork.com. Again, that's www.knowledgebase.blacktalkradionetwork.com. And welcome back to Black Talk Radio News. Um, the first news article that I want to share with you, the information I want to share, um, we had a guest on about a week or so ago. We had Mr. Justin Renell Joseph um, on the program to uh, tell us about his lawsuit that he filed against the state of New York, as well as the Met, the uh, world-renowned uh, museum, which, of course, is located in New York City. Uh, but what a lot of people don't know, that's a public museum. It does receive public funds. Um, without going all into that broadcast, again, our interview with Mr. Joseph, which lasted probably about 45 minutes, you can go to Black Talk Radio uh, Network.com and look in the archives of Black Talk Radio News with Scotty Reed on our page, on my page, my personal broadcast page, and you can find those archives. Um, but he emailed me today and said there's an update. Now, this is what he sued them for. He said that uh, he is a Christian. Uh, he is a person, he described himself as a black person, but also as a person of Hebrew and African descent. And so he went to the Met, um, said, you know, he was just trying to enjoy his day and whatnot. And he went to the Met and he saw this display of several different uh, pictures and whatnot, paintings on the wall of an Aryan Jesus. For those that don't know what Aryan Jesus means, you know, that's like saying white Jesus. All right, but he chose the term Aryan uh, Jesus, you know, the blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus that's not described in the Bible. And Mr. Joseph said that, you know, he, he just really took offense to that, that it made him feel like, you know, society didn't accept people of his skin color and that it's a practice of racism and white supremacy when um, you try to convince people that someone who lived in a certain part of the world who is described in the very document or the book um, that you are reading uh, describes him as a person of color, as a melanated person, um, as a person who would be from that area. I don't like seeing Middle East, uh, Middle East, that's really Northern Africa when they talk about the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, there are certain um, uh, countries they refer to as the Middle East that's outside of Africa, but most of that is really northern africa and so he he just really took offense to it he said that you know it kind of made him depressed and whatnot and so he had filed the lawsuit um i think he filed a lawsuit on november the 30th if my memory serves me correctly well you have a certain time to respond to a lawsuit when you're a defendant you know the plaintiff goes and files the lawsuit and mr joseph is indeed the plaintiff and they have a certain amount of time. I don't know what the exact amount of time is, but it's not forever. It might be 30 days. It might be less. I'm not sure. Um, I, I didn't think to ask him that when we interviewed him. But 
New, he emailed me today and he said that neither the uh, city of New York, neither the Met have responded in court through legal filings in responding to his lawsuit. And if they do not respond to his lawsuit by the 20, I think he said uh, Monday. Yeah, that will be, let me pull it up right quick. Let me see what that date will be. The 21st. If they have not responded by Monday, December the 21st, then he wins a default judgment on his lawsuit. Now, what is his lawsuit seeking? His lawsuit, is his, is he seeking a million dollars from New York City, from the Met? Is he trying to get paid, try to get a big payday or something by claiming personal injury? You know, we see personal injury lawsuits. No, that's not what he's suing for. for. What he's suing for is the removal of Aryan Jesus from the uh, walls of the Met. Um, and he wants the Met and the city of New York, which underwrites or funds uh, this public museum in New York City. Um, he, he wants them to stop practicing racism and white supremacy. Now, I thought the uh, response, the Met did give a response. Um, I think they spoke, gave, had a press conference or I'm not sure if they were speaking to uh, the New York Daily News, one of the local news outlets up there. But in a nutshell, this is what the uh, spokesperson said. It was, it was a woman who, who came out and spoke on behalf of the Met. And she said, oh, this is, this is just normal. This is typical. This is, you know, all cultures like to depict God in their image and whatnot. And I thought about that, and I was like, I ain't never seen a Chinese Jesus. I know there are some Chinese Christians out there. I ain't never seen a Japanese Jesus. I know there are some Japanese Christians out there. Um, I have never seen a, a Hispanic Jesus. I ain't never seen, you know, Jesus. I ain't never seen no. All I've seen is either white Jesus or I have seen black Jesus, where people have recognizing the uh historically incorrect uh, depictions of this biblical uh, uh, character. Um, you know, I've only seen blacks other than Caucasian Jesus or white Jesus. I've only seen black Jesus where people have tried to paint him according to how the Bible uh, describes uh, Jesus, you know, with wool hair, uh, bronze feet, obviously referring to bronze skin. Of course, that's melanation. And whatnot. So um, I'm like, wow, man. I, I, I'm like, they're probably. I told Mr. Joseph. I said they're probably having a hard time coming up with a logical response because that response or her the statement that was made about you know all of these different cultures like to show Jesus, you know, in, in their own image. That's just simply not true. That's that's not true. When I look at, you know, the Catholics in Mexico or South America in those Spanish-speaking countries, and I see them carrying around, you know, uh, pictures of whether it's of Mary or whether it's of Jesus or whatnot, those are all white Jesus and white Mary, you know. So she's factually incorrect. You know, the only people I have seen to uh, make Jesus in their own image, which would be the historically correct image, is to depict him as an African descendant person. All right. Uh, so um, <laughs> they have what? They have uh, only uh, not too long. They only got a few days uh, to respond. If they don't respond by five o'clock, uh, close of business, five o'clock p.m. Eastern time in New York. 
uh, where the lawsuit was filed in the federal court district there, uh, they lose by default, and they're going to have to take uh, Arian Jesus and uh, put him in a closet somewhere. Um, so that that's a that's one of the updates I just wanted to make you aware of. Uh, certainly, we want to have Mr. Joseph uh, back on the program. It won't be next week, though, because we pretty much have uh, all the uh, time slots for guest field for next week, unless he wants to come on Christmas Day, which is uh, December the 25th on a Friday. And I don't take days off, so he certainly can come on Christmas Day if he wins his lawsuit or let us know what uh, the Met in New York City's response. So neither, again, New York City. Um, nor the Met has responded to Mr. Joseph's lawsuit. I told you at the beginning of the program about a um, the suspected. I don't know. I can't say for sure because I ain't talked to these people. But the behavior that they're engaged in makes me suspect them to be racist. And so we got a we got suspected racist white parents in Virginia. Um, who have caused the school district to shut down today. There is no school in that district. Um, after the high school ge geography assignment on world religions, um, which was they were going to be looking at Islam, led to allegations that the school was trying to indoctrinate or trying to, you know, convert these children to Islam. And they got a whole bunch of angry emails and phone calls, and there weren't a lot of, of information shared by the school district as to the nature of those emails and phone calls. Now, they're sitting up there trying to say, well, we didn't get any bomb threats or anything like that. Well, why you shut the school down then? Did somebody threaten to come and shoot you? Did somebody come threaten to, you know, kill up a whole bunch of people? I, I mean, why would you shut the school down just because you got some some parents who are sending you angry emails and phone calls because they don't like, you know, the lesson plan of, of the day in uh, looking at world religions. And, and so um, I tend to think I think that they're withholding. I think they actually did get some some death threats or some bomb threats or some something of that sort, because it's a big deal when you not only just shut down one school, but you shut down the entire school district. You close all the schools for, you know, today because of these emails and phone calls you've been getting. And again, this is not the first case of parents getting angry over school assignments concerning world religions other than Christianity. Um, I have seen the stories uh, time and time again uh, of these people complaining and, and saying, but then this is the flip side of that. Not all, not all of these these people who are you know making these complaints and about Islam and don't want their children to learn about you know world religions in school if it involves Islam and and, and whatnot. But I, I bet you a good bit of them ain't got a problem with. They probably had a Christmas school play you know this week or got one scheduled for next week. I, I know the local high schools and junior highs and elementary school around here where I live, they, they, you know, engage in that kind of activity and celebrating Christmas and, and all of that. And, and so, you know, um, I see a contradiction there. I see hypocrisy there. I know these people wouldn't complain. They, they wouldn't complain uh, or they did not complain on the day that they were to study 
Christianity. I bet you they did not complain uh, if the assignment was on Judaism for that day. I bet you they didn't complain about it. So, you know, uh, that just tells me that they are a bunch of religious bigots. Now, don't get me wrong. I would not want somebody trying to uh, indoctrinate my children and, and, and try to, you know, uh, preach a religion to them and get them to convert to convert to whatever religion. That's not your place. That is not your place. Uh, you don't mess with other people's children in that manner. But we're talking about a school geography assignment. We're talking about studying history. We're not talking about, you know, we're going to learn how to be good Muslims. No, we're just going to learn some of the basic things about the religion, how, you know, it started and whatnot, uh, coming out of Africa. All major world religions originate out of Africa. Um, but, you know, I just find it just very, very, I'm not going to say it's not surprising to me, but it just, just tells me more and more uh, how radicalized some of these people are becoming. Uh, when, especially when you start talking about Muslim Americans and, and, and whatnot, or you're talking about non-Christian cultures and what people are threatened by that for whatever reasons. Like I've told the story before, when in 2008, when we came up with the name Black Talk Radio, which we came up with that name because that is the because black people actually do listen to radio and they don't all the time want to just listen to R&B or hip hop and jazz and they want to listen to talk radio so we put black talk radio in there to help them with their searches okay you want to hear black people talking about cultural things that's specific to them political uh, issues you want to hear them talking about the community and whatnot so we really came up with that as a, a marketing you know a uh, uh, with that in mind when we came up with the name and then also you know i am black and i'm proud i'm not ashamed ashamed of my blackness i'm very proud of my blackness and and whatnot uh i'm very proud of my african roots and, and, and whatnot and so you know people were offended by the name black talk radio they wanted to say oh they must be racist Black talk radio, you know, well, what about white talk radio? Well, white talk radio will be a little bit redundant, don't you think? You know, pretty much uh, talk radio is dominated by white males. So, you know, you already got that. It's, it's called the EIB network. That's Rush Limbaugh's network and whatnot. I think, uh, what's that other guy named? He got kicked off of Fox News. He's no longer on there uh, anymore. I can't recall his name right now. So, but my point is, is that, you know, Black Talk Radio, we don't have a lot of black talkers. We don't have a lot of talk radio programs that uh, focus on issues uh, specific to the black community. Like we just discussed, you know, the issue with a lack of African-American students going into the IT field. Uh, you know, with uh, Dr. Dillard. So, you know, people get offended, man. And so I, I guess this is the same thing. This is the same thing when you start looking at other people's culture and studying that, you know, we don't want our children exposed to that and that's evil and, and whatnot. But, you know, uh, we'll fight you to get prayer back in school or something like that. Yeah, meet us at the flagpole. Let's, let's all pray. Let's get God back into school and the reason i'm saying all of this is because those if you read the article 
that's what some of the people were were saying that you know that I don't want I don't want you know a guy to be taught in school and, and whatnot. Well, you know, do you feel that same way about if they were talking about a Christian God and whatnot? And so you know, these people are becoming radicalized and they are being radicalized by the mainstream media. If you ask me, it's not just your friends groups out there. It's not just your websites like Stormfront. But they are being radicalized by mainstream corporate media. Uh, they're being radicalized by public figures to practice racism, man, and religious bigotry. And, and, and just to illustrate that point, I made a clip of Ben Carson. Ben Carson is running for president um, on the GOP ticket. He's seeking their nomination, I should say. He's seeking the nomination of the Republican Party to become president. And I know this might be old news to some, but, you know, I still want to play this. And But Ben Carson said a Muslim should never be uh, ever be president of the United States. And so I want to play that. And then I got a couple of uh, points I want to make about what um, he said. So this is Ben Carson, um, a number of CNN interviews. Uh, where he talked about Muslims should never become president or something like that to that effect. Um, so this is the clip um, originating from CNN. You said last week, quote, I would not advocate that we put a Muslim in charge of this nation. I absolutely would not agree with that. I would advocate that people go back and look at the transcript. Should a president's faith matter? Should your faith matter to voters? Well, I guess it depends on what that faith is. If, if it's inconsistent uh, with the values and principles of America, then of course it should matter. But uh, if it fits within the realm of, uh, of America and consistent with the Constitution, uh, no problem. So do you believe that uh, Islam is consistent with the Constitution? Uh, no, I don't. I do not. I, I would not advocate that we put a Muslim in charge of this nation, I absolutely would not agree with that. He asked you about Islam, if you thought Islam was conducive to the Constitution, and you said Muslims, you would have a problem with a Muslim being president. I, I, would, I would have problems with somebody who embraced all the doctrines associated with Islam. If they're not willing to reject, you know, Sharia and all the portions of it, that are talked about in the Quran. If they're not willing to reject that and subject that to American values and the Constitution, then of course I wouldn't. And I would ask you, would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to advocate for somebody who would not do that? Probably not. I don't assume that because somebody's Muslim that they would put their religion ahead of the U.S. Constitution. And in fact, the U.S. Constitution itself says no religious test. Yeah, except that I had already said before that that anybody from any religion, from any background, if they are, I told you what the criteria were for that. I told Chuck Todd what the criteria were for. So he's asking this out of that context. You don't think that in any way you said anything that could have been said more clearly about Muslims? I made it very clear. Because you seem to be singling out Muslims as individuals who automatically, as a knee-jerk, would put their religion ahead of the country, and I think that that offended a lot of people, including a lot of patriotic Muslims. I think the statement stands. Is it is it possible that maybe the media thinks that it's a bigger deal than the American people do? I think because that, American people 
the majority of them agree with, and they understand exactly what I'm saying. I think I've seen from, I've heard from a lot of people who don't think that Muslims can be patriotic to agree with you. And I don't know that if I were running for president, I would want to support a people. Of, like of course Muslims can be patriotic. I have a, I've worked with Muslims, I've trained Muslims, I've operated on Muslims. There's a lot of Muslims who are very patriotic, good Americans, and they gladly admit, at least privately, that they don't accept Sharia or the doctrines, and they understand that Islam is a system of living, and it includes the way uh, that you relate to the government. And you cannot, unless you specifically deny that portion of Islam, be a Muslim in good standing. Now, if that is the case, if, if you're not willing to reject that, then how in the world can you possibly be the president of the United States? So you are saying that there is something specific about being a Muslim. You have to reject Islam in order to be a president. That's well, you, you have to you have to reject the tenets of Islam. Yes, you have to. And that's different from an Orthodox Jew or a devout Christian. If there's a devout Christian who's running, and they refuse to reject the ideals of our Constitution, or if they want to establish a theocracy, I cannot advocate for them. I guess the point is, you seem to be suggesting that Muslim Americans automatically want a theocracy. And I just don't know any Muslim Americans, and I know plenty, who feel that way, even if they are observant Muslims. Okay, in terms of the tenets of Islam, are you familiar with the, the, familiar. the, the corpus juris from the authoritative group of uh, the people who make the rules that goes back to the 10th century AD. I'm familiar with extremist interpretations and of plenty of religions. I'm not, I'm not talking about extremist interpretations. I'm talking about what is required. And you have to make a specific declaration and decision to reject the portions of it. What portions of it? The portions of it that tell you how you treat women, the portions of it that indicate that, uh, the kafir, who are the people who are not believers, uh, are subject to different rules that you, they can be dominated. I think one of the things is just you are a member of a church that there's a lot of misinformation about the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You're an African-American. You know what it's like for people to make false assumptions about you. And you seem to be doing the same thing with Muslims. In which way am I making a false assumption? About? You're assuming that Muslim Americans put their religion ahead of the country. I'm assuming that if you accept all the tenets of Islam, that you will have a very difficult time abiding under the Constitution of the United States. All right, so um, that was Dr. Ben Carson. And as always, when I play these clips, I'm taking notes and whatnot. But first of all, he doesn't even know what the basic tenets of Islam are. I mean, all you had to do was do a Google search. I'm sure Dr. Carson knows how to use a computer. I'm sure he probably has a smartphone that has access to the Internet and whatnot. So all he had to do was, is Google the basic tenets 
of the Islamic faith. And there are five fundamental practices that are uh, generally common to Muslims worldwide. A lot of people don't even know, you know, just like Christianity has different denominations. You got, like him, a Seventh-day Adventist. You got the Baptists. You got the Presbyterians. Uh, Mormonism, is that even classified as Christianity? You know, Mormonism, uh, I'm not sure. So somebody can enlighten me on that. Uh, same thing uh, with, with uh, Muslims. You have Shia Muslims. You have Sunni Muslims. Uh, right now, what you're really witnessing uh, in the areas that are war-torn right now, and I'm not talking about Syria, but um, like, for example, uh, regional powers, rivalries, whatnot, um, Iran, that's a Shia-dominated uh, country. Um, Saudi Arabia, that's a Sunni-dominated uh, uh, country. Uh, most of those people that are being we're told their name is ISIL or ISIS or, or whatever. Those mostly Sunni uh, Muslims uh, because they're being funded. A lot of their funding is coming from Sunni Muslim nations and whatnot. Uh, but I don't see Ben Carson calling now Saudi Arabia uh, one of United States key allies uh, in the region for funding terrorism. But I don't even want to go down that road right there. But again, th but these are the five basic tenets of Islam. I guess we could compare this to like the Ten Commandments in Christianity uh, that's in the Old Testament or the Torah or whatnot. But there, there are five basic, let's say, tenets. We won't call them commandments, um, even though I think that we could apply that word. You know, they got five instead of ten commandments. All right, so declaration of faith. This is what people say to become Muslims, and it is repeated during prayer. And in the call to prayer and at other times during the day, uh, this declara declaration of faith is called the Shahada. And it simply states, there is no God but God and Muhammad is his messenger. All right. That, that's sort of similar to what, you know, declaration of faith uh, by Christians and whatnot. I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Uh, there is no other God, you know, things of that. And it's pretty, pretty similar. Prayer. They believe in prayer. You know, they commanded to prayer. Uh, Muslims are supposed to make five daily ritual prayers, one at dawn, one at noon, another in the afternoon, one at sunset, and one before bed. These prayers may be performed alone or in a group. Um, let me see. Friday is the Muslim Sabbath, so people may gather in a mosque for noon prayer and, and whatnot, you know, uh, organized religion and whatnot. Uh, again, you know, um, a lot of Christians today will fight. I have seen lawsuits, actually, uh, where, you know, I'm trying to think of that one. Jay Sekulow um, is a Christian lawyer. Um, I forget the name of the organization that he runs, but he engages in lawsuits where he feel like Christian students are, are being uh, discriminated against or their rights are being violated or, you know, want to force uh, uh, the Ten Commandments or or assembly prayer that's a prayer group they want to allow that back into to the schools and whatnot i mean i i see it as no different you know uh it's a public show a prayer you know I, I was stationed in saudi arabia for a time i did witness you know when the when the um sound goes out from the mosque all these people just stop what they're doing and, and get down and pray so i, I you know got to look at it up front and personal and whatnot, but here's the thing, though, that I say to these Christians, though, 
that want to argue for public prayer and, and this and that. Well, if you actually read the New Testament, uh, which would include the Gospels, um, the four Gospels, um, it actually tells you don't be a hypocrite and don't be like those who love to pray and be seen by men standing on the corner like, you know, they've been fasting all day and whoa, it's me and I'm suffering for holiness or, or whatnot. You're actually not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to be pub, uh, publicly praying. Um, the Bible talks about, it gives you instructions that when you pray, uh, you go to your closet and you pray in secret and your father, which is in heaven, uh, will see you. And he will recognize your prayer openly. You know, I'm paraphrasing it there. But it actually does say go to your closet and pray in secret. It don't say uh, go to court and fight for you to be able to pray at the beginning of class or, or whatnot. It's not saying every time we have a school assembly, you know, we want to be able to say a prayer or when we open up court or when we open up the city council meeting, we got to say a Christian prayer and whatnot. And these people will freak out if if a Muslim is invited to give, you know, the invocation or, or whatnot to open up some kind of ceremony. But, you know, a lot of them, because a lot of these people, they actually don't even read their Bibles or whatnot. And they're not really practicing Christians and whatnot. And, and so, you know, I look at them and I just point them to that scripture. You know, you ain't supposed to be praying in public anyway. You're supposed to be doing that in the privacy of your own home. And not for me to see you and whatnot and then think, oh, that's such a holy person. And, oh, look at them praying. And you see here how they said that prayer. They sound so eloquent when they said that prayer and whatnot. No, all of that is for show. Okay, that's for show. And uh, if you read your Bible, it's, you're supposed to do that in secret. Because it's not supposed to be for show. You know, make people think you something that you ain't. Um, let me see. What's the third one? Giving to charity. You know, Muslims are required to give of their bounty to those who have less. This is called zakat, uh, which literally means purification. It is a tax of 2.5% of one's annual savings. Well, I think the Bible says something about that in the Old Testament, even though uh, you know, the tithings and the offerings and the prosperity preaching and, and all of that. And they telling Christians that you got to give 10% of your gross revenue, uh, you know, not after taxes, before taxes. You got to give it up, you know, and you got to give up 10%. Man, that's 10%. 10% is a lot when you're looking at 2.5% as Muslims are required to give of, I guess, their annual savings and whatnot so that's a whole lot but then again because people don't properly know or study christianity and it's very rarely that you will hear me talking about my spiritual beliefs because that's between me and the creator and but for the sake of politics we are talking about this in a political uh context and whatnot because some people want to um you know engage in religious bigotry in this country um but um the tithing actually was done away with with the crucifixion of, of Jesus Christ. I, I think that's Hebrews chapter seven. I can't remember the verse if I'm not mistaken, because I mean, I went at it with some family members about this. And I was like, what was the 10 percent for? Well, the 10 percent was for to give to the priesthood, because back then they had animal sacrifices and that's all the priests did. 
you know, he didn't have time to go raise his own crops and plant, you know what I'm saying, farm and all of that. Because he all day at temple sacrificing animals for the people's sins and whatnot. So that was his job, right? And so, you know, the community gave 10% of their crops or whatever it was uh, to the priests so that they wouldn't have to worry about, well, how are we going to feed our families and whatnot, you know, when we we're at the temple all day. Uh, killing animals for the atonement of sin, of the blood sacrifice and whatnot. All right. So for those that know the Bible, that know know the story about uh, Jesus ministry. All right. Nobody was able to keep the law. There was, you know, no one who was able to go without committing a sin and whatnot because nobody's perfect and whatnot. And so his his mission uh, was to be that perfect sacrifice once and for all. All right, he lived without sin, so the story goes, he lived without sin, never committed a sin, didn't have a blemish on him, so he was like that 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 uh calf without blemish that you were going to sacrifice, you know, to the priest and whatnot, to the priesthood, and so he, you know, that after he sacrificed himself and whatnot, the priesthood was done and over with, because see, no more do you need to, to, uh, to atone for your sins by... Uh, sacrificing animals and whatnot, taking them to the priest, to the temple, and have him kill these animals, and, you know, through this blood ritual, uh, now Jesus is the final sacrifice, and therefore, you don't need no priest, right? That This is what the Bible teaches, the end of that priesthood, it was w with his crucifixion, that brought it in, once he became the final sacrifice, and all you got to do, uh, again, I'm, I'm talking to you from what the Bible says, all you have to do is is pray to God the Father in Jesus' name and say, "Forgive me of my sins," and and that's on and don't it's done and over with. It's forgotten, you know. As long as you sincere and whatnot, and you just not a habitual liar, and you're gonna keep doing the same things over and over. Um, but you don't. If you if there is no priesthood, then why are you still giving ten percent then? Why are you allowing preachers to tell you about this commandment in the Old Testament? All right. They're saying you got to give 10 percent to the church. That's not what it said. It said to the priesthood and it ain't no more priests. Not not in, you know, uh, what would we call that? Um, not Catholicism, but uh, uh, Protestant churches and whatnot. They, you know. Yeah. So in Protestant churches. So um, again, though. We're talking about people being required to give money. Muslims are required to give to charity. Some of Jesus' commandments were to take care of the poor, to heal the sick. And, and so I, I don't see what's the big deal about that tenant. Uh, you know, uh, fasting do, uh, during the month of Ramadan. I was in Saudi Arabia during Ramadan. So I got to observe that up close and personal. Um, I did not, because I'm not a Muslim, uh, I did not attend, although I was invited out, I, I did not attend any of the Ramadan, uh, um, um, I guess you would call them banquets or feast or something, you know, after they fast all day, then they get to eat food at night and whatnot, I didn't go, alright, but that's the other tenant, that's the fourth tenant, fasting during the month of Ramadan, Ramadan is the ninth month of the Islamic calendar, Muslims fast from dawn to dusk. They abstain from food, water, sex, cigarettes, gossip, anger, backbiting, and other negative behaviors. Uh, the fast is designed to encourage self-discipline and sympathy. All right. So 
fasting. That's something that's taught in the Bible, isn't it? Is it not? You know, I hear people not all the time, but from time to time, I hear people mentioning, you know, I'm going on a fast and and whatnot, and you know, I'm trying to get some answer to this prayer, or I'm trying to work on this flaw, this character flaw that I have, and I need strength. And so I'm a fast and whatnot. So, I mean, that's taught in the Bible, man. People just don't realize the three major religions are all intertwined. They all originate uh, from Africa, man. They all originate from Africa. So anyway, uh, then there's the pilgrimage or the Hajj. If they are financially and physically able, Muslims are required to make a pilgrimage or Hajj to Mecca at least once during their lives. Mecca is in Saudi Arabia, uh, again, which is where I was stationed for six months during uh, the Gulf War in the 1990s. Um, so it says several rituals are performed during that, uh, circling the kebab, running between the hills of Safa and Marwa, um, echoing Hagar's search for water for her son Ishmael, by biblical characters and whatnot. All right. And so, again, you know, some they believe, Muslims actually believe in some of the same people or prophets that's found in the Bible. And so, Islam and Christianity has more in common with each other than not. And a lot of people don't realize that Protestant Christianity and Islam have more in common than, I would say, Catholicism and Protestant Islam. I would say more so than than Protestant Christianity and Judaism, okay? It, it, even though, you know, again, the Old Testament is really what they focus on in Judaism, the Torah and whatnot, we call it the Old, Old Testament. So, uh, again, all of this misinformation, you got Ben Carson talking all this crap, well, Muslim, you got, what the hell, somebody tell me, what the hell is uh, American values and principles? What the hell does that even mean? I know this country still practiced slavery through the 13th Amendment, and it lies to people, and they just had one big lion ceremony last week commemorating the uh, passage of the 13th Amendment, and not once did they read the entire 13th Amendment, which has an exception clause that says that slavery and involuntary servitude shall be abolished except for punishment for crime where a party has been duly convicted. All right. So they still practicing slavery. Slavery was not abolished. If it was abolished, it wouldn't have a loophole on how they can put you back into slavery. So that's an American value. Then slavery is an American value and a principle that they still practice to this day. I mean, come on, Ben Carson. What is American values and principle? What does that even mean? I don't know what that means. I don't see that Americans have any more values or principles than anyone else. So somebody please explain to me what the heck Ben Carson is talking about, because I don't know what he's talking about. Let me see. This country has been engaged in constant warfare since its inception. It still holds colonies all over the world. And I, yes, I said colonies, colony. Puerto Rico is a colony. The U.S. Virgin Islands is a, uh, is a colony. Uh, Guam is a colony. Hawaii, I know they're calling it a state, but it's really a colony that was illegally overthrown. And we just recently did a radio program on that about them, um, 
the Supreme Court stopping the vote for the people in Hawaii to get their kingdom back. You know, you hear these people out here talking about, let's take our country back. Well, the Hawaiians want to take their kingdom back, which was illegally taken from them when their queen was kidnapped and threatened with murder and everyone in her family and in her court if she didn't sign this paperwork giving uh, over the kingdom of Hawaii to the Dole family. Y'all remember Bob Dole and Elizabeth Dole uh, in, in the Dole Food Company? Uh, yeah. One of their ancestors, one of, one of their, uh, uh, I don't know if it was his grandfather or a great-grandfather, uh, worked with some Marines to overthrow that country. All right? So, uh, again, you know, what are American values and principles? Is it land theft? Is it genocide? Is it slavery? I mean, come on. Give me a break, man. What are American values and principles. And so again, these people talk about the Constitution, like, you know, Ben Carson want to bring up the Constitution, and it was brought up to him where there are no religion, religious tests for the office of any office in, in government in this country. There's none. There's none. We don't, you don't have to say, you know, I'm a Christian uh, in the name of Jesus, blah, blah, blah. You don't have to say that. You know what I'm saying? You don't have to say that in order to become to become a, a office holder and whatnot. And so, but that don't matter to him. I mean, he don't care about that part of the Constitution. It's about what he says, and what he says is, oh, there's got to be a religious test. He ain't coming out and saying that, but that's what he's implying when he says that you know the tenets of Islam and, and whatnot wouldn't allow them to become president and uphold the constitution well do you ain't trying to uphold the constitution either because you are more than willing to violate that part about no religious tests and as obvious as always they always blaming the media they always got to blame it on the media. that seems to be something with not only the right wing but i'm seeing it on the left wing um area as well but blame the media blame the media for what asking you real questions asking you to clarify yourself Asking you to get deeper into the issues? I mean, why are you blaming the idiot? And then his excuse was, well, the majority of Americans agree with me. And so what? We, we're going with my rule now? We're going with my rule. Really, Ben Carson? Let me tell you about mobs and mob rule, all right? But I ain't got time to teach you right now. Then, and he just sounds just like a white supremacist, man. I know he black. But he sounds just like a white supremacy. Some of my best friends are Muslims. People I have worked on. Y'all excuse me. My uh, grandson uh, came in. Okay, thank you. Thank you. You have a good day. I'll be with you in a minute. I'll be with you in a minute. Y'all excuse me. Okay, thank you. So, um... He says Muslims are my friends. I've operated on Muslims, and I know they can be patriotic and all this. Then, dude, what are you doing then? Why, what are you doing? Why are you bringing all of this hatred and, and putting out all this misinformation about Muslims and whatnot? I served with several Muslims in, in the United States military when I was in there, all right? And then he wants to talk about how Muslims treat women, all right? Look, America don't treat women too good misogyny is running rampant in this country you just only recently passed the lily ledbetter act where you pay women the same amount that you pay men you know equal pay for equal work 
So it ain't like women are really being tr uh, treated that great in this country. They still face gender discrimination and whatnot. So, you know, now I have been in Saudi Arabia and I have seen how those women are mistreated. They are treated like second class citizens. But that's not all every Muslim country. They're not treated like that. That's just uh, uh, the United States number one ally that's treating women like that. But the United States ain't got a problem with them treating money like that. So it's Ben Carson saying then if he was president that he would withhold any kind of financial or military aid to Saudi Arabia or um, Qatar or any of the other Muslim countries that's getting U.S. tax dollars and whatnot. Is he going to say, all right, these are Muslims and, and we can't be giving them this money and, and giving them these arms and stuff because, you know, um, they don't believe in the same things that we believe in. So we got to, you know, um, we got to end all of this welfare that we give in Saudi Arabia in a term in, in a form of military weapons. And so I don't think Ben Carson has thought this all the way through. You know, if he was actually to become CEO of USA Inc., you know, what he's saying and how he, all the different areas, he will have to apply his religious discrimination. All right. So, um, I mean, and then with these uh, parents up there in Virginia, really, you're going to call in threats to the school. You're going to get angry simply because your child has a lesson on world religions. And, and that day they are talking about Islam. Really? Are you really, really, really that far gone? Are you really that ignorant? Do you really want your children to be that ignorant? You know, so um, it's just very sad, man, the state of things in this country now. We got armed white men standing in front of mosques and whatnot and talking about their exercising their constitutional rights of Second Amendment rights and First Amendment rights. But what they're doing is in the exercise of those rights is trampling somebody else's rights. Like, you know, also the First Amendment, freedom of religion and whatnot. And, and I don't call those I don't call those dis, uh, demonstrations or whatnot. Those are intimidation exercises. They are hoping to intimidate those people uh, that they are targeting by standing, you know, across the street or right outside you know, the mosque with armed weapons, all right? That's terrorism, if you ask me, because one of the uh, criterias for the definition of terrorism is intimidation. And the whole thing with the guns is whatnot is you're applying that you will use violence. So that's terrorism. That's terrorism, and, and it's pretty bad. Uh, last week we saw, uh, or was that earlier this week, we read about a mosque being firebombed in this country. All right. So is that what you're talking about, Dr. Carson, when you're talking about American values and American principles and whatnot? All right. Because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm an amateur historian and I could tell you a lot of things about this country that, you know, I, I don't think um, people would be proud of. At least they shouldn't be proud of it. So, again, what is these American values and principles that Dr. Carson is talking about or is he just telling the uh, redneck voter base of the GOP what they want to hear I think that could be it 
You know, he just telling me he's blowing them racist dog whistles just like white people do. So, again, if you're new to the program, I come up with this term called proxy racism. And that is where non-white people practice racism on the behalf of white supremacists or on behalf of the white supremacist system. And that is what Mr. Carson is engaged in. And his target is, we could say, non-white Muslims. All right, because the majority of Muslims in this country are non-white, but 25% of them are black people who may belong to the nation of Islam or converted to Sunni, or they might practice Sunni or Shia, uh, uh, you know, form of Islam. And they may not belong to the nation of Islam, but 25% of Muslims in this country are black. African Americans, not Arabs from whatever country, from abroad or whatnot. So, again, reason I talk about this issue because it, it you know, it concerns me. Uh, hate, religious bigotry, racism, all that kind of stuff concerns me, man. And Dr. Carson should be ashamed of himself. Let me see. Last story, a listener uh, sent me some news concerning Colorado's booming canna cannabis business. I'm actually running a little long, uh, but I will share just a bit of that article uh, with you. I, I did bookmark the article. Uh, let me see. Legal Weed. This article is from Clutch Mag, Clutch Mag Online. I was about to say Clutch Magazine Online. But it's Clutch Mag Online is the uh, article that was shared with me. White people get rich. Black people get to stay in prison. And just to give you a brief, uh, I'll just read a couple of excerpts from this blog. It says that ever since Colorado and Washington legalized cannabis, people have realized how much of a big business it actually is. So far, Colorado has brought in over $200 million in revenue. Uh, side note. I read an article where they were saying that um, they were talking about sending the citizens a check, like a rebate check or something. You know, like when people do their taxes, they get a refund. Remember the stimulus checks that y'all got after 2008 to help prop up the economy that was uh, falling like a house of cards and whatnot. So I read this article where they were saying they're taking in so much tax revenue that they're going to give some of it back. To the citizens, they have completely funded the schools and, and they got all this excess money that they're going to be able to give a tax rebate back to the citizens uh, in Colorado. I mean, that's a big deal. And it says that it has now even made it a bigger hotbed of tourist activity. Now, just imagine the other states that are noticing the huge success of cannabis. Best believe they attempt to profit off of it. Okay, but what do the faces of those profiting off of weed look like? Well, anybody who has looked at any of the documentaries concerning the legal cannabis business in Colorado or Washington, most of, I would say 99.9% .9 of those are white males. White males. Now, here is the point of the article. I want to get to the point because I don't want to spend a whole lot more time on air. I'm actually over time and I got some work to do. Uh, but this is what I did not know, but it is a question that I asked. I assumed, and we shouldn't assume things. I was told that in our, in, in the military. No, Micah, I have not. Uh, give me just a moment.
I'll be with you. I'll be with you in a minute, okay? Pardon the interruption. I am trying to babysit right now. Um, also, um, so this is the point. This is my point. I assume and I wrongly assume that once they legalize cannabis, since it's no longer, uh, uh, you know, illegal to to use cannabis, to produce cannabis, to grow it, to possess it and whatnot, that they were going to let all them people on marijuana charges out of prison. I thought they were going to get out of jail. I thought they were going to have all their charges dismissed. Well, according to this article on ClutchMagOnline.com, is no, they did not let these people out of prison that they had locked up for selling weed, uh, you know, uh, on the street or in their homes or whatnot, or for growing weed and possessing weed or using weed or anything like that. No, they did not. They did not. And to me, that is an egregious offense. How dare you legalize something, set it up so that, you know, and Colorado is, is pretty much a white state anyway. But then you got all of these white males profiting off of this that you've been locking up mainly non-white people, Hispanics and black people since the 1930s is when um, I think they uh, um, outlawed cannabis is in the 1930s i'm thinking about the film uh what was that that propaganda film they put out reefer madness and 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 showing that you know if you get high then your daughters and they're gonna be all promiscuous and 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 it makes them go mad and and they kill people and, and i mean just total garbage man people don't know the history of that is that a corporation was behind making cannabis illegal because um because he owned a paper, I'm talking about the Hertz family and that whole empire, and I may not have said his name right, um, but he owned a bunch of tree farms as well, right? And they make paper from what? Trees. Well, guess what else you can make paper from? Guess what else you can make a whole bunch of products from? Cannabis. And so he saw that as a threat to his tree farm industry and so he used this money to grease the wheels we know how the political system works and then next thing you know u.s government telling people they can't smoke weed no more and they can't possess weed no more all right so here we are now with a majority of the states we do have a majority of states that have legalized either medicinal medicinal uh ca cannabis or recreational cannabis or both you know, there's no distinction made, but we still continue to keep these people locked up in jails and in prisons. Why? When you've, you've legalized it. It makes no sense. To me, those people should have their records expunged. If all they got on there is some kind of a petty cannabis charge or something, yeah, those records should be expunged. And nobody should be in prison for it right now. So... Um, thank the listener. I want to thank you for sharing that article with me. Just points out everything. Hey, what did Ben Carson say? These are American values and principles, you know. Yeah. Keep a bunch of people locked up for something that you've legalized. That's America. Aren't you proud? All right. That's the end of the program of tonight. Check BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Our streams on Facebook and Twitter. 
Um, I don't want to say for sure, but race treaty should be on air tonight at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern time where they talk about uh, racism and white supremacy through the human rights uh, lens and looking at, you know, human rights laws because uh, those civil rights, men they can take civil rights away from you. They can't take your human rights. They can violate your human rights, but they can never take them away from you. So that's the premise of race treaty. And then at 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern time will be a broadcast of the Lotus Place. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and shut down the broadcast. I can't believe I stayed on air this long. But recognize this. Recognize the fact that you do, in fact, live behind enemy lines controlled by a corporation known as USA Inc. And that it is a battlefield out there. If you don't believe me, man, all you got to do is look at social media and your news feed and casualties are being created every day. And not just citizens killing citizens and, and whatnot engaged in violent crime against each other, but police on citizen violence and, and whatnot. You don't believe me? Go check the uh, database killed by police.net. All right. Matter of fact, let me go ahead and no, nah, I won't check it out. I'll, I'll let you go ahead and check it. But we're well over 1000 people being killed by police this year. And at least from my estimates and other people's estimates, it's possible that 700 of those seven to 800 of those were unarmed people. No, they did not have any weapons. They weren't trying to kill anyone or, or anything like that. They were determined to be unarmed. That's a lot of unarmed people. So there's a lot of casualties being created in America, and so you don't become one of those casualties. You need to develop what I call, what other people call, battlefield awareness. You need Other people might call it situational awareness. You need to develop that sort of awareness and then the skills to deal with everything that you will encounter out there on the battlefield. There's no guarantees that you... Uh, won't become a casualty, but you can decrease the likelihood that you will become a casualty. So until what's today? Friday, right? I will be back on air Sunday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time with a broadcast of Political Prisoner Radio. And you can find about find out about all the political prisoners being held by the United States government. There are hundreds of them. And the U.S. government doesn't want to acknowledge that they exist, but they do exist. And you can find out about some of those prisoners every Sunday night, 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, Black Talk Radio Network. Peace and blessings to all. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.